the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's make sure we are uh, ready to study. Let's just bow our heads together and open in prayer. Father, we do thank You for this time to look at Your Word. We thank You for the tremendous insights that You have given us, for the tremendous instruction that we have, and above all, that we have a high priest at Your right hand, a high priest fully qualified, and a high priest who continually intercedes on our behalf. And now, Father, as we continue our study of Jesus' high priestly prayer, we pray that we might be challenged by the things that we learn. In Jesus' name, amen. On this 4th of July, I thought it would be somewhat uh, insightful for us to go through a little information about the men who signed the Declaration of Independence. Sometimes, when, uh, especially in a modern, our modern culture, when history professors are often more anti-American than pro-American, when we, they operate on a multicultural presupposition towards history, which uh, tries to teach history, and you parents be aware of this, tries to teach American history in such a way that, that Americans really have no culture, that Americans really have nothing unique, they're just a, an amalgam of other cultures, and try to break down uh, and destroy the uniqueness of the American system and try to say that the founders of the American Republic, the United States of America, simply had their own interests at stake and were trying to protect their own wealth, that this is absolutely false. Have you ever wondered what happened to the 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence? Five of the signers were captured by the British as traitors and were tortured before they died. Twelve had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost their sons serving in the Revolutionary Army, and another two had sons who were captured. Nine of the 56 fought and died from wounds or hardships encountered during the Revolutionary War. They signed and they pledged their lives, their fortunes, and, the, and their sacred honor. Those were not empty words to those men. Twenty-four of the men were lawyers and jurists. Eleven were merchants, nine were farmers and large plantation owners. They were men of means. They were well-educated. In many cases, they were wealthy. But they signed the Declaration of Independence knowing full well that the penalty would be death if they were captured. Carter Braxton of Virginia, who was a wealthy planter and trader, saw his ships swept from the seas by the British Navy. He sold his home and property to pay his debts, and he died in rags. Thomas McKean was so hounded by the British that he was forced to move his family continuously. He served in the Congress without pay, and his family was kept in hiding. His possessions were taken from him, and poverty was his reward for signing the Declaration of Independence. Vandals or soldiers looted the properties of Dillery Hall, Clymer, Walton, Gwinnett, Hayward, Rutledge, and Middleton. At the Battle of Yorktown, Thomas Nelson, Jr. noted that the British General Cornwallis had taken over the Nelson home for his headquarters. So, in, as a sign of the kind of integrity these men had, he quietly urged General George Washington to open fire, and his home was destroyed, and as a result, 
he eventually died bankrupt. Francis Lewis had his home and properties destroyed. The enemy jailed his wife, and she died within a few months in prison, in a British prison. John Hart was driven from his wife's bedside while she was dying. Their 13 children fled for their lives. His fields and his gristmill were laid to waste. For more than a year he lived in forests and caves, returning home to find his wife dead and his children vanished. A few weeks later he died from exhaustion and a broken heart. Norris and Livingston suffered similar fates. Such were the stories and the sacrifices of the American Revolution. These were not wild-eyed, rabble-rousing ruffians. They were soft-spoken men of means and education. They had security, but they valued liberty more. Standing tall, straight, and unwavering, they pledged for the support of this declaration with firm reliance on the protection of the divine providence. We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. They gave us a free and independent United States of America. Most of our history books gloss over this information, but you see, freedom is never free. It is always bought with a price, and the price is always the lives of men and women who have the integrity to be willing to sacrifice for something higher and greater than themselves. And that kind of integrity cannot come from a relativistic, self-absorbed, self-seeking, self-centered society. And until our nation returns to the kind of ethic that undergirded the 17th or 18th century America, the kind of ethic that can only come from a Judeo-Christian base where there is a God who is outside of history, a God who has spoken in history, a God who has acted in history to redeem people. Until you have a God of that type, you cannot have freedom. For no other system of thinking, no other religious system, Hinduism never did it, Buddhism never did it, animism never did it, Greek philosophy could not accomplish it. There is no other system in all of history that could produce a free society other than Christianity. Take out a map sometime. Take out your magic marker. Maybe just do it in your mind. But draw a line between the nations that have been affected by Christianity and those that have not. Then take out your pen and draw another line between those nations affected by Protestant Christianity as opposed to those affected primarily by Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodox. And then draw another line between those nations that were affected by, a, by pursuing a consistent, detailed, in-depth, doctrinal Protestant theology and those that weren't. What you are left with is basically England because of what happened, transpired in the English kingdom under in the English Reformation. They carried through many of the principles of Scripture and they thought through the implications of the Bible in terms of freedom, politics, uh, economics, every category. Now, that, that doesn't mean it was perfect. That doesn't mean that everything they did was right. That doesn't mean we would necessarily agree with every theological position that they took. But they sought to make the Bible relate to every single arena of life, from marriage to uh, intellectual pursuits, from economic theory to uh, social interaction. And the result was the greatest system of freedom that was ever seen on the planet since the theocracy of Israel in the 13th, 14th century B.C. And that is because it was based upon the Scriptures. So when you are tempted to think that doctrine doesn't matter, that theology doesn't make a difference, just think about history. That is why history is more often than any other arena of study the battlefield of human viewpoint versus divine viewpoint. That's why it is in the history class that your ideas and that your divine viewpoint thinking will be more challenged than any other area, even in evolutionary Darwinistic biology and science because it is in the history classroom 
that the perversion of these human viewpoint ideas is often carried out and propaganda and history is distorted and used as propaganda against uh, the past and against the truth and the impact of Christianity. And it is incredible how impoverished people are today about what actually took place in history, in the history of our, of our nation, in the founding of our nation, and in the history of Christianity. Well, let's open our Bibles and we will continue and conclude our study in John chapter 17. John chapter 17. This is Jesus Christ's high priestly prayer. And we are coming to the conclusion of this prayer. We've been studying the prayer itself for four or five weeks now. And this is the conclusion, really, of a subsection in John. And that subsection began back in John chapter 13. John had two purposes for writing the gospel. He outlines the first towards the end in John chapter 20, verse 31, where he says, These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Now, what he is talking about in that section is the sign section of the book. There are eight signs, including the resurrection, in the Gospel of John, beginning with changing the water into wine back in John chapter 2. And what John is doing is organizing that section of the, of the Gospel from John 1 through John 12, and from John 18 through uh, John 21, that's the sign section. In the middle of the sign section, from John 15 through John 17, or excuse me, from John 13 through John 17, John is focusing on Christian life themes. This is built off of the purpose he puts in the mouth of Jesus. Jesus made the statement. He uses that to express his own purpose. Jesus said, I came to give life. I came not like the thief to destroy, but I came to give life and to give life abundantly. That's the second purpose for the Gospel of John. So you have two, two the, the whole sign section that is interrupted with a parenthesis from John 13 through John 17, which is going to, which section emphasizes the basic themes for the spiritual life. Now we have been in this since I think the beginning of the year when we began our study of John 13. So before we wrap up this morning, I want to go back and kind of pull some of those threads together. Because starting next time, we are going to completely shift gears. Jesus has been teaching and instructing the disciples now since John 13. And in chapter 18, we shift back to historical narrative. And the focus in John 18, 19, and 20 is the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. So we will go into the suffering and of the Lord in terms of paying the penalty for our sins. But in John 17, he closes out the evening with the disciples with a prayer. This prayer is an illustration of how he intercedes for all believers. So we get to peek in, listen in to a, an intimate conversation and prayer between the second person of the Trinity and the first person of the Trinity. And the themes that are emphasized in this prayer are the same major things that Jesus Christ is continuing to pray for each one of us today. So if you are living your life and you want to know what God's plan is for you and what Jesus Christ wants of you, then when you look at this prayer, you'll find out that Jesus has a plan and an agenda for your life. And one reason we may have trouble in this life is because we're pursuing an alternate agenda. In John 17, 1 through 6, Jesus is praying for himself. And we went through a detailed study of his relationship to the Father and the doctrine of the Trinity and the hypostatic union as we studied those verses. Then starting in verse, excuse me, that's 1 through 5, and starting in verse 6, the focus shifted to his ministry to the apostles. He says, I manifested thy name to the men whom thou, hast, to whom thou gavest me, out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them to me, and they have kept thy word. 
and from verse 6 down through verse 19, Jesus has emphasized specific prayer for the apostles. But this prayer it has a broader range. While his personal primary application in this section of the prayer is towards the disciples, it has a broader impact. And we know this because in verse 20 he says, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. So 6 through 19 is primarily the uh, apostles, secondarily the entire church. Starting in verse 20, it's going to have primarily the church as a whole, all those who come to Christ on behalf of their witness, that is the witness of the apostles. And so in verses 20 down through 26, the focus is on the church as a whole and everyone who comes to know Christ during the church age. Now, we saw last time that Jesus outlines the priority in verses, verse 17. He prays, Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. And we saw last time that the emphasis here is on the communication of specific doctrines, that it is information that is true. It, when we read a passage like Hebrews 4.12, this word of God is alive and powerful, the reason it is powerful is not because it has some sort of mystical, superstitious, innate power, but because it is true. That's what Jesus is saying in John 17. Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. There is absolute truth. There is only one truth, and it is what God has revealed to us in his word. And that is how believers grow. We do not grow by participating in the Lord's Supper, baptism, going to church, prayer, giving, witnessing. Those are all activities related to our priesthood. Every believer is a priest, and as a priest we have certain responsibilities. And those responsibilities entail giving, prayer, going to Bible class, supporting the local church. All of those are related to the outworking of our priesthood, but they do not promote spiritual growth. Spiritual growth comes from the study of God's Word, taking in the doctrines that are there, letting that transform our thinking so that our mentality is renewed and we think as God thinks and we interact with the world around us and the things in the world around us on the basis of the truth of God's Word. So Jesus prays, sanctify them by means of truth, Thy word is truth. Verse 18, he says, As thou didst send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. See, we have a mission. God doesn't just save us to be saved, but we are to be witnesses. The entirety of human history is like a trial. It is related, all of human history is related to the unseen angelic conflict that is raging around us. Before God created man, he had created the angels. Each angel was created independently and separately. They do not marry and have children. Among the angels, the highest was Lucifer. He was the most brilliant, the most intelligent, the uh, most capable of all of the angels, and he succumbed to arrogance. He wanted to be like God, and so he began to uh, promote a conspiracy among the angels. And one-third of the angels followed him in that conspiracy. And because of their rebellion against God, God sentenced them to eternity in the lake of fire. Now, we know from passages like Matthew 25 that the lake of fire has been created and is reserved for the angels who rebelled against God, for Satan and the demons. So it's already been created. Why aren't they there? Well, we can suppose, I think, draw an accurate theological conclusion that the reason that it has their condemnation has been postponed is because God is demonstrating some things about his character and about the inability of Satan's position, the invalidity of his position. Perhaps Satan challenged him in some way as to the 
uh, validity of the verdict, that maybe he said something along the lines that, well, God, you're not fair. You never gave me a chance to show what I can do. I want to try to show that I'm God and demonstrate it, that my principles and my procedures really do work. And so God gave him the opportunity. God created the human race as sort of an object lesson through which to demonstrate that only on the basis of God's principles, only on the basis of God's principles of grace, love, humility, dependence exclusively upon the authority and power of God, could creatures ever achieve any level of stability, happiness, and joy. Now, the purpose for the witness is that whenever you trust Christ as Savior, you become a witness in this trial. It is your life that it stands as evidence for the grace of God, the goodness of God, and that God indeed is true and accurate. Now, it only takes one to drive the nail into uh, Satan's coffin, as it were, and to demonstrate the validity of God's position. But God is working all of these things out through human history. So, as it's, in a sense, the instant you trusted Christ as Savior, you became a visible witness to the angels. And the Scriptures testify that the angels watch us and they learn from us. There are things about God's character, His love, His grace, His mercy, that they can learn in no other way. So that as we are here today in church teaching the Word of God and as you live your life day in and day out, you and I are constantly observed by a horde of angels. And they are watching us and observing us and learning about God. And so our lives are a witness in that sense. And one of the ways in which we demonstrate that is through our operation as witnesses to the gospel and explaining the gospel to unbelievers. So we have a mission. We're not saved simply to be in heaven We are saved for a purpose, and that is to be witnesses in the angelic conflict. So Jesus prays, Thou didst send me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself. Now that's the Greek word, hagiazo, which means to set apart. And this is a reference to what will take place the next day when Jesus goes to the cross. He is set apart for that purpose. That is his mission. And he is doing it as a substitute, and as a substitute for them. That's how the first part of that verse should be uh, translated. And as a substitute for them, I set myself apart, that they themselves also may be set apart by means of truth. In other words, it is by Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection that we are set apart positionally. And this takes place at the instant of our salvation, When through the baptism of God the Holy Spirit, we are identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. That's in Romans 6, 1 through 5. Then Jesus goes on to pray in verse uh, 20. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Notice that. Once again, in verse 20, that it is through their word. Word is communication. We think with words. It is not emotion. It is thought. It is not having some sort of existential encounter with God. It is not going out into the desert and going years without food or very little water. It is not carrying on some activities like the, um, like the fourth century uh, monastics, the desert monastics who would go out into the desert like Simon Stylides and sit on top of a pole for uh, seven or eight or ten years and uh, people would come from miles around to hear words of spiritual wisdom from him. Because obviously he must be spiritual because he's given up life and he's sitting, he was the first pole sitter and he's uh, must be spiritual for that. And people get all kinds of crazy ideas about what spirituality consists of. Uh, This is not it. It is not an experience. It is not an emotion. It is through words. One of the foremost thinkers in the realm of communication in this century was a man by the name of Marshall McLuhan. Marshall McLuhan talked about communication in terms of two categories. He talked about hot communication, which is communication that has content that appeals to men and moves men on the basis of content. 
That's using ideas and thought and information in order to challenge, motivate, and direct people. The second category he talked about was cool communication. Cool communication is person, he called, said was personal first order experience where men are moved but without any content going through the mind or the thinking or the reason and is a manipulation based upon environment or images or electronics. And this is exactly what we have seen take place. He wrote earlier in this century, and we have certainly seen this take place with the advent especially of television and movies, that people are moved. Just watch this this year. If you, want, if you question this, watch the political ads. How much emphasis is placed on image and how men are dressed, how they look as opposed to substance and content. I often wonder why men don't sit down and have commercials. I kind of like what Ross Perot did when he brought out his little chalkboard. And because he was addressing mind and content, he would write principles down there and put up graphs. He was appealing to people on the basis of content. Now, it doesn't mean I agree with him. I just liked his approach. And instead of that, what you see is people, you have images of, of candidates kissing babies and holding hands and speak, sitting down in classrooms surrounded by children and all of these positive images, but there is no content. You see the same thing happening in churches. They, the, the average church today emphasizes this cool communication. It's all image-based. It is not based on substance or content. You can go, you know, we ought to be very excited about what we have here at Preston City Bible Church. I don't think there's another church like this within a couple of hundred miles. It's because all the other churches have succumbed to emotion-driven, non-content-oriented motivation, which produces robots. It produces people who are constantly carrying out the activities of their life based upon external stimulation rather than internal motivation based on thinking and content. And once you get people, get a society that operates on the basis of imagery, operates on the basis of style rather than substance, then they are easily swayed and easily manipulated. And that is the first stage in the direction of slavery. Think about it historically. Back at the, in the late 15th century, we're talking about I think it was somewhere around 1470, 1480. I'm not sure of the exact date. Gutenberg invented the printing press, movable print. And, and uh, as a result of that, the Bible could be printed uh, rapidly, more rapidly than, than it ever had in all of its history because up to that point it had been hand copied. And so they set up, uh, they were able to print Greek texts. They actually got in the hands of more scholars uh, a number of other things happened that uh, related to getting the Bible into the hands of people, but the result of the printing, the invention, one of the results of the invention of the printing press was it got the word to people. When Luther nailed his 95 theses, now those are debating points, uh, on the door of the church at Wittenberg, and the reason he did that was because the door of the church, the church was the center of all activity in town, and the front door of the church was like the neighborhood bulletin board. And so if you had uh, uh, lost your cat, you would go down and nail that on the door of the church. Or if you uh, were looking for something or you had something for sale, you would go tack that on the door because everybody went to church sooner or later and would see it. So he had 95 debating points over a number of issues in Roman Catholicism, and uh, he nailed those up as, as debating points. And it was taken down by a printer, and it was printed and passed out and circulated widely among the people because of the printing press. And so these ideas began to spread. Whatever Luther wrote was printed and distributed, later Calvin and the other reformers. And so the truth of God's Word began to be circulated. It was a result of content, information put into the hands of people. You know, I don't think that the... Uh, modern Pentecostal movement would have had near its success if it weren't for the images of television. I've been a student of the history of the Pentecostal charismatic movement, and a tremendous shift took place right after World War II with the advent of 
especially television and a number of things related to that which emphasize emotion, what you see, images, substance, and divorce content and thought from experience. And this happens so often in... Uh, and the theory of homiletics and teaching and what goes on in churches is, oh, don't give people too much information. They don't like that. They just, just give them information on how to live. Don't try to teach them too much because uh, that will just fry their brains a little bit. And so we don't want that. And that's actually the approach that is taken in, in many, many churches and, and in many seminaries where they teach pastors never to never refer to the original languages at all. Somebody might think you're just trying to show off your learning and that you're a little bit arrogant. And that's the most absurd thing I think I've ever heard. You don't, no pastor should ever, I mean, there may be some, I've never heard them, uh, that use the Greek and the Hebrew uh, in an arrogant manner, but that's not its purpose. You go to the original languages to demonstrate what it really says, what the Bible says, what it teaches in the original languages, and no one should get in the pulpit unless they know the original languages of Greek and Hebrew so that they can properly and accurately exegete the text from the original. And you don't utilize that to show off how much education you've had, but to give people a sense of confirmation in the truth of Scripture and that you have actually thought about what you're studying and that it validates what you are teaching, that this comes from the Scripture. Because more often than not, and you've noticed it here and there over the years, that I will retranslate Scripture differently from that which you have in your English translation. And whenever I do that, I give you clear reasons why it should be translated a little bit uh, differently, because all of your translations have been affected by theological systems of the translators, and that has come through in the, in, in the English version that you use. So the trend today is against content. It's towards image. It's toward emphasis on how you feel. That's why I am so much against moving in the direction of the modern worship movement, the contemporary choruses, and things of that nature, because what is going on here is just a shift away from content and feel good. It approaches a type of music, a type of um, approach to music that stimulates emotion rather than thought. And it's been demonstrated many different ways. It's not just the words, but it's the style of music that uh, affects your thinking. Studies show that if you listen to something like Mozart, that it stimulates mental activity in such a way, especially with young children, that it will, it, because of the way it's written, because of the mathematical structure of the compositions, that it uh, affects the mind in such a way that it stimulates different areas of the brain that promotes cognitive thought. Whereas there's other kinds of music that instead of promoting cognitive thought, they make it more and more difficult to think. Well, that's why most churches, most people in most churches don't want to think is because by the time the pastor gets up to say anything, they have sung a variety of songs that have put them into some sort of emotional state that makes it uh, less easy to concentrate and to focus and think. And so the most they can handle is 15 minutes of uh, some little superficial homily. And if they had to think very deeply or very intensely, uh, it would fry their brains. So we try to use older hymns. It's, and it's not, all, as I've said before, it's not just an issue of, of older versus newer, but it is style, and we want to emphasize substance and not just, not just style. So Jesus emphasizes this in verse 20 when he says, I, that, that we will believe in me through their word. This is the message of the gospel. And you must get that clear. What is the gospel? The gospel involves an understanding that God is righteous. That God righteousness is His absolute standard. And that man falls short of that standard. You should have scripture verses. You should memorize at least a half a dozen scripture verses that relate to the gospel. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 Isaiah uh, 65, 6, all of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. John 3, 16, 
Romans 5.12, but God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died as a substitute for us. You should have these kinds of scriptures on your fingertips. That's one reason I always open up with the same scripture recitation week after week after week is to try to uh, help you with scripture memory. If you hear me say it long enough, often enough, somehow it's going to be beaten into your consciousness and you will perhaps remember those verses when you get involved in a discussion with somebody about the gospel. So you need to understand the content of the gospel. It starts off with God. It doesn't start off with man. Because God is the final authority and God is the issue, not our experience. God is absolute righteous. He has an absolute standard. And God cannot have fellowship with anyone who falls short of that standard. And that means that... uh, that the issue is not how can a loving God let his creatures into heaven, which is usually the response you get from people. We've all heard that. Well, I just don't understand how God can be loving and send his creatures to the lake of fire. And I like to flip that on people and say, well, explain to me how a righteous God can allow dirty, rotten sinners into heaven. Because that's the issue. And uh, the issue was taken care of because Christ went to the cross And there he died. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that the righteousness of God might be found in us. And learn that verse, memorize that verse, because it hits the issue. And that is that we lack righteousness, but because of Christ's death on the cross, we can receive imputed righteousness. It's not based on who we are, but on who Christ is and what he did on the cross. And that we receive perfect righteousness at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone. And that is exactly what we learned the Holy Spirit emphasizes back in John 16 where Jesus said when he, that is the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict, that is convince the world concerning sin and righteousness. And that we saw was imputed righteousness and judgment which is the judgment of sin on the cross by Jesus Christ. So the issue is to understand the imputation of righteousness because that's what the Holy Spirit is going to be convincing people is true. So what happens you get people go off and they start talking about the gospel and they say, well, you need to invite Jesus into your heart. Well, you know, the Holy Spirit isn't going to work with that because that's not true. That's based on a misinterpretation of Revelation 3.21, which is talking to believers about fellowship. It's not talking about unbelievers, to unbelievers, about salvation. So if you're using something wrong, then the Holy Spirit's not going to use it. John 16 tells us that what the Holy Spirit is going to be convincing them of is sin, that is their unbelief, righteousness, that is their lack of perfect righteousness, and their need for perfect righteousness and judgment, and that is that Jesus Christ was judged on the cross. So we need to have our message correct, that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for our sins, and that all you have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't involve anything else. Acts 16.31 is an easy verse to remember. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. So that is the message. That's the message the apostles took out into the world. That was the word that they, that they spoke. Verse 21, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. Now, what in the world is Jesus talking about when he says that? that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee. Well, we could look at that in terms of the essential unity of the Trinity. That's one possibility. But that's not what he is saying, because we don't enter into a, into a unity with Jesus Christ like he has with the Father. So it, must not, it can't be talking about that kind of essential unity. It must be talking about something else. And the key to understanding that something else is found in the phrase, in me. Even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee. This phrase, in, Christ is in the Father, the Father is in Christ, is a reference to their intimate fellowship, not, a, not an emphasis on their personal identity or union in terms of the oneness of the Trinity. 
We know this from other passages, such as John 10.38, where Jesus said, If I do them, that is, works, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. That is, they have close personal intimacy, and Jesus is fulfilling the plan of the Father because of their intimate fellowship. John 14.10, Do do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. John 14.11, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Otherwise, believe on account of the works themselves. Every time you have this phrase, in me, in relationship to Jesus and the Father, it is not talking about something positional. It is talking about something relational. That is their intimate fellowship. Now hold your place here in John 17 and turn with me to the first chapter of the epistle of John. Since we've been studying the gospel of John now for a little over two years, especially spent a lot of time in in the upper room discourse, I've, I've been thinking about, because it won't be long, maybe six months before we finish the gospel, I've been thinking about what we'll do next, and I've considered going into the epistle of 1 John. I've never uh, done that before as a pastor. I've never taught through 1 John because I, uh, I have more sense than that. John, as we have seen, you don't know this, but John is written. John writes a very simple Greek. That's why every first-year Greek student, after they go through their first-year grammar, starts off translating the Gospel of John. John writes in simple Greek, but he has incredibly deep theology. This We have seen profound things in our study of the Gospel of John. And the epistle of John is no different. The Greek is simple, but its interpretation is complex. I think that uh, Hebrews and 1 John are the most difficult, two of the most difficult books in the New Testament to properly interpret. And because of that, I have steered clear of 1 John and managed to avoid it for the last 20 years. But I have been studying a lot of things in it over the years, and it has really hit me. I keep going back and forth in my study of the Upper Room Discourse with the, with the Epistle of 1 John, and I think that the Epistle of 1 John is John's uh, commentary and expansion of the basic ideas of the Upper Room Discourse. You think about it, you see words like abide, minnow. Abide. In John 15, Jesus says, said, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. And then in, John, in 1 John, the writer emphasizes the importance of abiding in Christ. The theme of the entire upper room discourse is that we are to love one another as Christ loved the church. And love and what that means, believer to believer is a major theme in the epistle of John. So I am convinced that the epistle of John is the apostles' further reflection and thought upon the message of Christ in the upper room and its application to the church. Now he begins the first, first chapter by talking about fellowship, which is what Jesus is talking about in John 17 21, our fellowship with the Father and its relationship to the world. John writes, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father was manifested to us. What we here, the we here is all talking about we the apostles, this, this coterie of people who were close to the Lord, who spent three plus years with Him, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. Isn't that exactly what Jesus just said? Uh, and praying that, that their word would go forth in verses uh, 19 and 20. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you also may have what? Fellowship with us, And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. 
Now notice what he's emphasizing in those last two verses, verses 3 and 4. He's emphasizing that so that you believers can have fellowship with us. Just because you're a believer doesn't mean you automatically have fellowship with other believers. And that our fellowship can be with the Father. Now he goes on from verse 5 and following dealing with what breaks fellowship, with the, which is sin, and its solution, which is confession in verse 9. But in verse 3, he's focusing on this fellowship, what it is entailed in true fellowship among believers. And the result of this is joy brought to completion. Remember that. We'll get back to joy in a couple of verses. Now go back to John 17. Jesus is praying that we might be one. This is not some sort of experiential, ecumenical unity that we all just get together and hold hands and seeing uh, we are one in the Spirit over and over again, so we can all go home and, and praise God that, that we're all believers. It's wonderful that we're all believers, but that doesn't produce fellowship. Because whenever there is sin in the life, that breaks fellowship. is the issue. It is not social interaction with other Christians. You'll always find somebody come along to uh, Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 42, where it says the early, early church uh, devoted themselves to the apostles' um, teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. And somebody will come along and say, well, that's four things they did. No, it's two things they did. The last two things are an appositional explanation of fellowship. They devoted themselves. That means they made their number one priority the apostles' teaching and fellowship. But is that fellowship with other Christians or fellowship with God? And so the writer says prayer and breaking of bread. That's the Lord's table and prayer. That's fellowship with God. That's not fellowship with man. So what's the priority for the believer? Devoting yourself, number one priority to doctrine and fellowship with God. And so the only way we can have true experiential unity is if it's based on doctrine being in fellowship with the Lord. So Jesus is praying that we might have fellowship, but that's based on the truth. You can't have fellowship apart from the truth. And it is on the basis of this true fellowship based upon the truth and sanctification from the Word of God that we present a unified testimony to the world around us. That's that purpose clause there at the end of verse 21, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. See, it's not the experiential unity of the ecumenical movement and the World Council of Churches that has a testimony to the grace of God. What's a testimony to the world of the grace of God is when believers stand firm on the truth of God's Word, and that is the only way that the gospel is going to be presented and manifested to the world. That is the basis for Jesus' prayer in verse 21. Verse 22, And the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. And this glory is not the Shekinah glory in the sense that um, that it's displayed on the Mount of Transfiguration. I've made the point before that, that when uh, John and Peter and James were up on the Mount of Transfiguration, they saw Jesus in His, in his glory. It, it, it burst forth, it shone forth, and every, everyone there saw it. The, the three disciples did. James, John, and Peter. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us about the Mount of Transfiguration. John was there. He never mentions it. You do a study of glory in the Gospel of John, and it talks about how in the everyday details of life, how Jesus related to people, how He taught people, how He challenged them with the Gospel. That's how the glory of God is manifested for John. So in John, he's not talking about the Shekinah glory. He is talking about the character essence of Jesus Christ, which is manifested in the life of the believer as a result of his spiritual growth. As we grow to maturity, we manifest the character of Jesus Christ. And that is the glory that he is talking about that shines forth to the world as a witness. And it only comes by being, what? In fellowship with the Lord so that the Holy Spirit 
fills us with the Word of God, produces fruit, so that as a result of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, in Galatians 5, 21 and 22, we manifest to everyone around us the character of Jesus Christ. Verse 23, I in them and thou in me. That tells us right in that verse that you're not merely indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, but by God the Son, I in them, and God the Father, thou in me. If God the Father is in Jesus and Jesus is in you, then that means God the Father is also in you. So we are indwelt by all three members of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It is God the Holy Spirit's indwelling that sets apart our physical body as a temple for the, the indwelling of the Shekinah glory of Jesus Christ so that we become a temple to God. That is its purpose, so that we can then manifest God. So there's no building that is important. It is the individual's body that is set apart. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom Thou hast given Me, this is every single believer, right there He has you in mind in verse 24. When He says, I desire that they also, put your name in that in that in place of the they. I desire that fill in the blank with your name also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, in order that they, fill in the blank with your name, may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus is talking about the fact that that in order to uh, go forward and advance, we need to be focused on Jesus Christ. This is occupation with Christ. This is one of the great problem-solving devices that God has given us. It is explained for us in more detail in Hebrews chapter 12. I will read the verse for you in just a minute. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him, notice 1 John 1, 4, that our joy may be brought to completion. Here, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Just as Jesus handled the extreme testing and pain and suffering of the cross based upon his, uh, the inner happiness that he had because of his relationship with God, so we too can handle anything in life because of that joy that we have. But that is the result of doctrine in the soul. This brings us now to verse 25. O righteous Father, remember he calls him Holy Father earlier. The whole emphasis in this is on holiness and sanctification. O righteous Father, although the world has not known thee, yet I have known thee, and these have known that thou didst send me, and I have made thy name, that is thy character, known to them. We saw that, tied that into uh, Jesus' role Throughout history is the one who manifests God. John 1.18, no one has seen the Father at any time, just the only begotten Son who has revealed Him. I have made Thy name known to them and, the, thy, and will make it known that the love wherewith Thou didst love me may be in them and I in them. So he ends in verse 26 with the statement that His love will be in us and manifest in us. Now that takes us back to John chapter 13, 33 and 34, where Jesus gives the new commandment to the believer in the church age. Let's wrap this up. This is a summation. John 13, 33 and 34, Jesus announces that in verse 33 that he's going to leave. And in 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. This is the new command. Then in chapter 14, he begins to explain how this is going to be possible. It's evidenced by our, our obedience in John 14:15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It is further going to be enhanced and developed in us through the Holy Spirit. He begins to introduce the Holy Spirit as the helper, that is, the assistant in the spiritual life. In verse 16, I will ask the Father and He will give to you another helper 
that he may be with you forever. And this is the introduction of the Holy Spirit. Jesus then developed this thought even more in verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to them. So the helper produces love. The helper also helps us understand the character of God even more. Then, it's, and, and this, all of this began in John 13 with the illustration of cleansing. The importance of confession of sin comes at the beginning of his discourse on the spiritual life, which emphasizes the fact that we have to be in fellowship before we can grow. Then he gives the principle for that in John 15, which is abiding in Christ, and we saw that that was remaining in fellowship with him. And this is evidenced again by uh, keeping the commandments. So there is a relationship between fellowship, loving Christ, and keeping my commandments. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. What is it that Jesus prays at the end of John 17? He says, I have made thy name known to them and will make it known that the love wherewith thou didst love me may be in them and I in them. So he prays that his love will be in us and this is related to fellowship of back in 1510 and that is related to maintaining our consistent obedience to the word of God. So we must stay in fellowship. Again, he emphasizes in that chapter the new commandment to love one another as I have loved you. And then he continues to introduce the role of the helper. He's introduced first as the helper in John 14. Then when you come to John 15:26, that term is used again, parakletos, when the helper, that is the assistant, comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of Truth. Notice how... Now we make a connection here. He's, he's the helper and he is the spirit of truth. That relates to his role as communicator of doctrine. And then this is further enhanced when we come down to verse 7. This helper, the spirit of truth, comes to convict people of the truth in John 16, 7 and 8. And then in verse 13 of that chapter, Jesus says, But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into what? All the truth. He is the Spirit of truth because He is the one who is the member of the Trinity involved in the communication of revelation. So what Jesus has told us is that we have a new commandment, a new spiritual life. It's based on fellowship with the Lord and a relationship with the Spirit of truth and knowing truth. And indeed, it is that truth that is the means by which we grow as believers. But we can't know the truth apart from a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And you can't have a relationship with the Holy Spirit unless you're abiding in Christ. And you can, as a believer, not abide in Christ. And the result of that is divine discipline ultimately ending in the sin unto death, which is the branch that does not bear fruit that is removed and taken away and burned in the fire. This is the emphasis of these chapters is what it means to love as Christ loved the church. And the interesting thing is that the, this use of love in verse 26 of chapter 17 is the last time that word is used until you get to the last chapter of John. Why is that? Because in John 13 through 17, Jesus is telling us that we are to love one another as I have loved you. Well, how is, does Jesus love us? That's what he portrays for us in 18 through 20 when he goes to the cross. And we will pick up on that next time when we begin to study how Christ loved us so much that he gave his life as a substitute for our sins with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you so much for your grace and your goodness that you have provided us with this remarkable salvation, that you have loved us from eternity past, and you have displayed that through being faithful to your word throughout all of the centuries, through sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross as our substitute, that he who knew no sin was made sin for us, and that you have devised a perfect plan to 
impute to us and to give us your perfect righteousness based upon his work on the cross. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their eternal destiny, uncertain of their salvation, that they would take the opportunity right now to make that sure. All that is necessary is that you put your faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied, that we would be mindful of the new commandment and all of the new dynamics that you have given us for the spiritual life in the church age, that we might advance to spiritual maturity for your honor and glory. In Christ's name, amen.